Well, this weekend, I want to speak to you about the saint and the sage, okay? And uh, this is uh, taken from uh, my message from a couple of weeks ago when I talked about understanding the Torah. And I wanted to just develop this a little bit further because I felt the Lord just keep speaking to me about this. I found this to be very, very intriguing. So I'm here to share my interest with you, okay? And I want to begin by looking at Numbers chapter 6. Uh, verses 2 to verses 18. You don't have to turn to it, but what I've done is I've given you a little summary or breakdown of these verses that just describes for us what this law of the Nazarites is all about. So essentially in verse 2 of chapter 6, it begins by saying that this is a law or this is something in which you can enter into voluntarily and it is open to, to both men and women. I find this to be absolutely fascinating, okay? Because as you understand what the law of the Nazarite is about and now seeing this that it is available to both men and women, I believe God is saying something very clear to all of us. And it's a voluntary vow and it is a, a vow that brings about a separation of ourselves, our lives to the Lord. In verse 3, in verse 4, it tells us a, a couple of uh, pertinent and important details of what this vow is about. The first is an abstinence from alcohol, but not just an abstinence from alcohol, it's an abstinence from all great products. You couldn't go near a vineyard, you couldn't eat raisins, you know, and uh, so all anything to do with grapes, you have to refrain from it. And it tells us also that this vow is for a period of time, it's not perpetual, okay? And then in verse 5, it talks about another element of this vow, and that is the fact that you cannot shave, you cannot cut your hair, and you are to be unkempt for the whole period of the vow. Verse 6 to verse 7 tells us that you cannot become ritually unclean, specifically by going near a dead body, okay? Even that of your own family members during the period of the vow, you cannot go near any uh, dead, uh, dead person, okay? And of course, in verse 8, it, it, it talks about the emphasis on holiness. Verse 9 to verse 12, what if you accidentally break this vow? What must you do? How do you rectify that? Verse 13 to verse 14, when you complete the vow, you must present three sacrifices, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering. And finally, in verse 18, you have to shave your head, cut all your hair, and then burn it together with the peace offering. Very unusual vow. And it's not something that we practice today in the church, obviously, because, you know, uh, Pastor Dian is where he is, not because he fulfilled his vow and <laughs> shaved it. But he's a constant Nazarite. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But the Nazarite vow is really a, essentially a vow that is ta that's taken when someone voluntarily um, desires to separate themselves to God. But let me say this, that this is a, a tremendous vow. This is a weighty vow. This is something that people did uh, uh, with great importance. And we see this because there are several people in the Bible that are Nazarites. And these Nazarites were, were just very distinctive. God endowed all the Nazarites that were in the Bible with great authority and great purpose. And some of these Nazarites that are mentioned in the Bible include Samson, Samuel the prophet, Elijah the prophet, and of course John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, each of these men, if you observe, were given unique gifts and they were given authority meant to lead and to direct the whole nation of Israel and sometimes to bring national deliverance over idolatry. And in the case of John the Baptist, it's literally to prepare the way for the Messiah of all the earth for all times, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What a privileged position that is given to those who are Nazarites. Amos the prophet gives us a little sense of the esteemed position of the Nazarites when he said in Amos chapter 2 verse 11, I raise up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men 
men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel? And God literally puts the Nazarites together with his prophets and says they are a greatly esteemed people. But the question is this, what is the purpose of the vow? Why did God put this vow inside his laws? Why did he make this provision? What is its intention? Now, in order to understand this Vow, again, I want to emphasize that the vow of the Nazarite is very, very serious. Don't ever think that it is some kind of a personal retreat that you take. Oh, for three days, I'm going to go to some place and I'm going to do a silent retreat. I'm not going to talk to anybody. Or don't ever think that it's like, oh, I'm going to fast for, you know, seven days on a Daniel fast. You know, I just eat lots of vegetables and things like that. And don't please, don't ever compare this to a social media fast, okay? Oh, I'm in my social media too long. You know, for two weeks, I'm not going to touch my social media. It's nothing like that. You know, a Nazarite vow is so much more weighty and serious than just doing something like that. You see, if you want to compare what is required of the Nazarites in the Old Testament, there's only one group of people you can compare it to, and that is the priesthood of God. So I've created this table, take a look at it, and it basically compares what is required of priests, high priests, as well as the Nazarites. The priests were required to abstain from alcohol during the period when they're serving in the tabernacle. And of course, the, the priests, they don't serve every day or every week, okay? But they have divisions, they have groupings, so they, uh, there's a rotation, a roster, but when, when they're rostered to serve, they could not partake of alcohol. The high priest, on the other hand, had a permanent abstinence from alcohol because the high priest is only one person. He serves every day in the tabernacle. He's in perpetual service, so he's constantly abstaining from alcohol. But the Nazarite is not just an abstinence from alcohol, it's an abstinence from every product of the grape. A priest could not defile himself except for those who are his closest relatives, you know, their spouse, their children. A high priest could not go near a dead body even of a loved one when they are clothed in the robes of the high priest. A Nazarite, even a sudden death that happened, you know, unexpectedly around him, defiles him. Now, when it comes to, you know, expressions, the priest is not permitted extreme expressions such as the slashing of their bodies, cutting themselves, you know, or, you know, um, or shaving the bald spots. And these were things that the, uh, the priest could not do. For the high priest, not only could he not do, do those things, he, could, he had to make sure that he was properly kept all the time. He couldn't be disheveled in his hair. But for the Nazarite, he couldn't even touch his hair. He couldn't even cut his own hair. So what you observe here is this. The requirements of the Nazarite is higher even than the requirement of the high priest. This is unexpected. This is like confounding why. Isn't the highest spiritual position in Israel the high priest? How on earth can a normal person who takes on the vow of a Nazarite now be required to do more than what the high priest does? What is the reason? What is the purpose? You know, and the only way that we can know this is by examining the examples of the Nazarites in the Bible. And then we see a common thread and we see the purpose, the function of Nazarites. You will notice in all the four examples I cited concerning the Nazarites, okay, uh, Samson, Samuel, Elijah, and John, that they all lived during periods of time where there was great decay in authority in the nation of Israel, especially spiritual authority. It always happened when the, the priesthood went corrupt. In the days of Samson, there was a total absence of authority and guidance from the priesthood. Right? I mean, the, the, the end of Judges, there was an account of this priest who just, you know, did whatever he wanted, cut, you know, cut his wife into multiple parts and to the different tribes. I mean, weird, you know, strange things that they did in their own eyes. And Israel did whatever was right in their own eyes. They were in great decline, you know, they were subjugated to other nations. And in that atmosphere, 
God raised a Nazarite by the name of Samson. Now, Samuel also lived in similar times. The priesthood during his time was led by a man called Eli who was corrupted. His sons were corrupted and he didn't correct them. And the Bible tells us that, you know, the people of God hated the sacrifices of God. And not only that, the ark of God's presence was captured by the enemy. There was a, there was a complete collapse in the priesthood. And in that atmosphere, God raised a Nazarite by the name of Samuel. And then, of course, there's Elijah who came during the time of King Ahab where the priests of God were massacred and there was instead a a false priesthood that worshipped Baal that was in place. And finally, John the Baptist arose at a time of false religiosity that was punctuated by hypocrisy and oppression by the religious authority of the Pharisees. So this is the common thread. Every time the priesthood went wrong, every time there was a failure, God raises a Nazarite. You see, the priesthood is meant to carry the weight of moral conviction, of piety, of instruction amongst God's people. But what happens when the priesthood fails in its duties? What happens when the church stops preaching the unadulterated word of God? What happens when the church falls into corruption and becomes just like the world and we fail in our moral responsibility to society and we become more concerned with popularity than with pleasing God? It is in times like this that the law of the Nazarite comes in. God gave the law of the Nazarite as a proviso to raise up men and women at the same time who are not part of the priesthood, who are not appointed to priestly authority, and yet he will and yet will avail themselves to become his voice and his authority. This is a way through which God provides for those to volunteer themselves when the priesthood fails and people, the people of God feels this burden and says something must happen and then they say, Lord, I'm willing to take the vow of the Nazarite and in the time of need become the voice that you need in my generation. That's what it is. I mean, Samson was endowed with supernatural strength. Samuel, the Bible tells us, he spoke and not one of his words fell to the ground. In other words, whatever came out of his mouth, God would fulfill what came out of his mouth. That's a powerful prophet, amen? Elijah could control weather patterns. He could shut and open heaven. He could call down fire at will. John's voice opened the hardest of hearts. You know, the Nazarites literally were like God's defibrillators that when the church is dead and needs a quick start, the Nazarite comes up and pumps that on our heart and wakes up the church again. I'm telling you there are times in the history of the church where God literally raised up these Nazarites because the church was dead and God had to revive the church. Amen. And that's God's triage for a dying church. You know, but the strange thing about the law of the Nazarite is that there's something very puzzling about this law. And essentially, it's got to do with the completion of the law. When this vow is completed, there is an offering that is required, and that is a sin offering. You see, a sin offering is always required when there is sin. Amen? But yet, you know, imagine this. You have just completed your Nazarite vow. It's been 30 days. You have not broken it. I think that if I've done a 30-day or 60-day Nazarite vow, I would be the most holy moment of my life. I would be like, you know, I would have been obscured. I would have been spending time with God. I would not have touched alcohol. I would, not, I would be unshaven. I would be like totally in the presence of God. Why in your most holy moment do you require to present a sin offering? A burnt offering, yeah, sure, because a burnt offering expresses our love to God. A peace offering, yeah, sure, because it expresses the peace of God that has come to us, right? 
But why a sin offering? You know, this is such a mystery that it has literally created many, many divergent views as to what this law of the Nazarite is about and why a sin offering is required. For some people, they think that by ending the Nazarite vow, that is the sin because you're coming from a high standard of living to a lower standard, a lifestyle of, of, of your walk with God. And therefore, you have to give a sin offering for that. Others contend that when you voluntarily take on uh, you know, the vow of a Nazarite, it is a, it is a choice of a path that is very extreme. right? And that is where the sin lies. Because in, in, the, Old, in, in the Old Testament, the, those who were Nazarites that were named, they were Nazarites by birth. It was God who calls a Nazarite. But when we take a vow and volunteer for it, that in itself is a sin. Now, I believe that to understand this, we need to distinguish between what is a saint and what is a sage. Let me mention this uh, as, a, as a precursor that, you know, we are all saints in the Lord. I totally agree with that. And someone mentioned that to me at the end of the service, and I appreciate that very much. But I want to just define specifically what I mean by a saint and what I mean by a sage for this message in itself, okay? And a saint is essentially, in my, I'm defining it as someone who separates himself or herself to the Lord. And the nature of separation requires one to separate ourselves and withdraw ourselves from people, from the, the daily business of the day, from the world, the affairs of the world, from our normal lives. You know, in, in many ways, it is truly a path of extremes, okay? And you're doing an extreme act. I mean, think about it, not cutting your hair, not doing those things, not go, even going near even to your loved ones if they happen to pass away. A Nazarite vow is, in my opinion, the path of a saint, a path of separation. It is to embrace a life that is quiet, that is secluded. It's a differentiated lifestyle. Not a vaccine-differentiated uh, measure, okay, but a differentiated lifestyle. It's a wholehearted pursuit of moral perfection. Now, in every religion, we see aspects of this, right? Even in Christianity, you know, and, uh, you know, there are people who choose a very monist monistic lifestyle and things like that. John himself was uh, Essenes, you know, and, and that's a very monistic and a very saint-like lifestyle. But on the other hand, what is a sage? A sage, I believe, uh, I define it as some, someone that's quite different. A sage immerses himself in the middle path and seeks balances. He seeks God, he loves God, but he also wants to contribute to the world that God has created. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. He does not embrace poverty, neither does he seek to be rich. He participates in the affairs of the world, seeking to engage, to influence, and to be relevant. Now, these are not just two types of people, the saint and the sage, but they represent two ways of life. And if I could say this, these two ways of life are mutually exclusive. If you're living the lifestyle of a saint, you cannot live the lifestyle of a sage. If you live a lifestyle of a sage, neither can you do the lifestyle of a saint because when you want to be a saint, you are going to stand out. You're going to stick out from everybody. You need to seclude yourself. You need to go on a path that others are not on. And Nazarites are essentially saints. There's a special requirement that's asked of them and they are there to, to call the church back from her backslidden state. They are there to bring correction to the body of Christ. But let me tell you this, the sages don't do that. Instead, the sages have the skill to build society. A sane separation excludes them from participating in, the, in society. And I'll give you some examples of that. Yet Jesus calls us to be in the world and not escape from him. From it. He calls us to be the light of the earth, the salt of the, earth, uh, salt of the world. And, and, and essentially these two things, light and salt, they're vivid representation of our participation in the affairs of the world. Right? And, and this is the struggle that we all face, you see. 
There is a part of us, I believe, if you're walking with God, there's always a side of us that longs and desires for more of God. Amen. I mentioned this, you know, in my message some weeks ago that, you know, I've really been thinking about retirement, okay? And not retirement, retirement per se, but, you know, I'm in this place where I think to myself, hey, maybe I've got 10, 15 more years. I finished my responsibilities here in Cornerstone. And what would be my idea? What do I want to do? And I thought to myself, yeah, I really want to sell all I have, move to some part of the world, have a little vegetable plot, let Wendy grow vegetables, live off the greed, Great, you know, I just want to pray. I want to spend my time in God's presence. I want to intercede. I want to read the Bible. I want to study. And I want to write, you know. I want to write books. And I want, to, I want to live the life of a saint. But then I'm telling you this. There is a pressing need for the responsibilities that are there in our lives. You know, I've got kids I've got to look after. You know, there's communities that we are responsible for. I shared this with Pastor Nikki, you know, two nights ago. And, you know, and he said, he kind of said, wake up, Lalit. <laughs> but I think it reflects something in all of us, right? The longing just to be with God more and more. Amen? And that's something that we desire. I mean, I mentioned there are about 100 full-time staff and all of us, when we sign on for full-time, we all thought in our hearts, yo, man, we're going to serve God. We're going to be in ministry. We're going to preach the Word. We're going to pray. We're going to know His Word. And, you know, we're going to just heal the sick. And those are all the things that we do. And those are things that we do. But, hey, as we come into full-time, we discover 70, 80% of our time is spent, you know, doing reception duties, answering phone calls, you know, signing off forms and, you know, um, ministry, you know doing counseling, you know, doing marriages. The report just came out yesterday. Last year, we did 54 funerals. Wow. In December, 12 funerals alone in December. A lot of people dying, you know. But those are things that we're doing. I mean, I, I just spent a couple of hours going through all the Dendor lists here in Cornerstone and signing off on those things. And I mean, the budgets that we have to do, we literally spent hours working through the budget for 2022. And these are all things that we do. But I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to preach the gospel. Oy. But yet there are necessities, there are things that we need to do because the church needs to run. Things need to be completed. And this is something of a dilemma, I believe, that all of us face, the saint or the sage. Now, I want to explain this for us and put some relevance for us by pointing at two pairs of examples. The first pair of examples is Elijah and Moses. And these two men I want to talk about because they're so important for us as Christians because they're not just characters in the Old Testament, they're characters that are pivotal in the New Testament. Right? And they're not just known as Elijah and Moses. The Bible at different times has got assigned names for them. They are called the two olive trees in the Bible. Every time you see these two olive trees, it's talking about Elijah and Moses. They're also called the two witnesses that stands before all the, 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 uh, the, the Lord of all the earth. And when you see two witnesses, again, it refers to Elijah and Moses. And it's amazing that these references are found in Zechariah 4, they're found in Revelations 11. And of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain and Elijah and Moses stand side by side to him. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is the Lord of all the earth because the two witnesses stand beside him. That's an evidence that's given to us. But when you examine both of them closely, you discover one of them is a saint and the other is the sage. Elijah was a hairy man in hairy clothes. I love this description. I really like this. You know, if I could be, I'd want to be a hairy man in hairy clothes, okay? I try. I try to grow, you know, my moustache and all that, you know. I become a scraggly man, you know. And it grows to a point, it doesn't grow anymore. And my wife insists that I shave. I mean, I, I, I tried my best. The whole December, you know, I, I, you know, for the last three weeks, I didn't shave, you know. And every day she complained, shave, 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 you know. So I, I decided, you know, to be an Elijah, you cannot be married, you know. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> Oops, Elijah. 
But there's a hairy man, and every time in the Bible you see a hairy man in hairy clothes, I'm telling you, you know it's a Nazarite. You know it's a man of authority. For a season in Reese Howell's life, he was a hairy man in hairy clothes, walking whales, and people will see this man, and they'll know, hey, Elijah is here. Because Elijah traversed uh, and walked through Israel pretty much on his own. He didn't have people around with him. He wielded authority over weather. He called down fire. But he was secluded. He was obscure. One moment he's here, one moment he's there. People couldn't find where he was. He was always hidden. And when he met with God, it was up alone in the mountains in a little cave that nobody knew about, except for the fact that he recounted those accounts to us. And that's what a saint is. But Moses, on the other hand, was constantly surrounded by people. He was right in the middle of the nation of Israel. He was presiding over it. He was judging the affairs of the people. And he was putting in place leadership. He was dealing with issues in the life. He was dealing with water, with food, and all these kind of logistical problems. He established, decreed the laws of God. He established, the, and he was just constantly involved in the daily affairs of the life of Israel. But yet you see in Moses a desire to be a saint. Because when he went up to the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, he didn't want to come down. Then he went up again, 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't want to come down. In both instances, notice this, it was God who insisted for him to come down. If God didn't tell him, Moses, get down, he would have stayed in the mountain forever. And that's the yearning of every one of our hearts, to be in that mountain with God, amen. And he loved the presence of God so much, he took his tent and he pitched it outside of the camp from far away from the people because that's what a saint needs. He needs to be alone and he would walk into that tent and the presence of God would come and he would just be luxuriating in the presence of God. But guess what? He had to leave the tent all the time because the responsibilities that awaited him. He was a sage who desired to be a saint. And, but yet, I want to point this out. The saint and the sage, Elijah and Moses, they both stood equal before God. It is not one or the other. They have equal position. They have a function. They have a purpose. And then, therefore, that's why, you know, these two witnesses, these olive trees, there is one who is a saint and there is one who is a sage. The next example I want to give to you is John the Baptist and Jesus. Here's another illuminating example. Because John, again, was a hairy man with hairy clothes. And he was one who lived in the wilderness far away from everybody else. His food was locusts and honey, and yet his voice was irresistible. Hardened criminals, corrupt officials alike were convicted, and they were swayed under the anointing of this man's preaching. I'm telling you, when this man spoke, everything shook. People could not resist the voice of God. The people that were most unlikely to repent, they would come repenting before God, asking to be baptized in water. And yet John lived consecrated. He was fasting all the time. He had a very Spartan life. Let me tell you, bare essentials. He, where he lived, if you visited John on those days, there was no plumbing at all. There was no sewerage. There was no you know, flush in his toilet. There were no luxuries. There was definitely no wine and there was no rich food. And that's the path of a Nazarite. That's the path of a saint. How many of you would like a life like that, okay? John the Baptist was the one who announced that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and yet John was the one who doubted his own declaration. In John, in Luke chapter 7, he sent his disciples and to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we wait for somebody else? And why did he doubt it? He doubted because the lifestyle was so different. Jesus described it. In verse 33 and 34, Jesus said, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
but wisdom is justified by all her children. You see, John doubted because Jesus was not walking in the path of a saint. He was walking in the path of a sage. He always had people around him. He was going from party to party. He was eating. He was drinking. There was no fasting. In fact, you know, he turned water into wine. I mean, what a, a contrast. And for a moment, the saint was shaken because he thought that that was the life that everyone was supposed to have. And yet Jesus lived the life of a sage. I want to reframe for us what this Nazarite vow is. And help us understand, apply, what does it mean for us today? Are we, am I just talking about something that's thousands of years ago or is there application? I believe that there is, okay? I believe that, you know, there are some things that will never break open, some things that we'll never see breakthroughs, some transformation that will not happen until a Nazarite rises up, until a saint stands and says, I'm willing to pay the price of an extreme path to see an extreme breakthrough. And God is calling for it. And it's not just men, it's men and women. It's voluntary. It's a willingness to say, Lord, I'm willing to put aside all these things. But let me tell you this, there is a sin offering required because you are abdicating certain responsibilities that you have in order to embrace this purpose that God has placed in the direst of moments. God is looking and raising up Nazarites. And I promise you, we are living in the days where God is going to call people amongst us to say, would you live a life of a saint? Would you become a Nazarite? Because there's something that Nazarites bring that nobody else can bring, that sage cannot uproot the way Nazarites can uproot things. Amen. And the Nazarite life necessitates that we just abandon those legitimate responsibilities and come aside to the Lord. And yet at the same time, let me remind us that the tone of the gospel that Jesus brought to us requires us primarily to be sages and not saints. Because again and again, Jesus said, you are salt and you are light. We are, not, we, are not, uh, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. The Great Commission requires for us to go into the worlds and make disciples of all nations. That points us to the role of a sage and not a saint. It requires our involvement, not, and not the, our, our involvement in the world and not our extraction from the world. And I want to I help us understand this a little bit further especially in the area of a Nazarite, because God will call us to be a Nazarite, to take the vow of a Nazarite, to walk the path of a saint, sometimes for a season. Because for a season, God will say, hey, I need a man, I need a woman. Who will stand? Who will go for us? And that's when God is looking for that Nazarite. And in that season, in that period of time, God, you know, imbues us and gives us the grace to walk this path and gives us a clear assignment. But there are other times where God will give us a reason to be a Nazarite. He will tell us, hey, there is a burden upon my heart. I want the doors of this nation to open. I want the gospel to penetrate this place. I want to see a breakthrough in this area. And he says, for this reason, I'm going to raise up Nazarites. And I pray here in Cornerstone that we will not just be willing to be sages, but then God makes a call for it. There will be those of us who will be willing to say, Lord, I want to be a saint. Amen. I mean, there is a call, Pastor is sounding through Vision Sunday and through the, you know, the last few weeks about returning back to this place of prayer, to this place of changing and ch uh, history and forming history through prayer, of going up to the Bible College of Wales for seasons of prayer and intercession. And I'm telling you, that's a call of a path of a saint. And may there be that those who are amongst us will answer that call. Amen. May we never lack people in this house to answer the call of a Nazarite. But I want to tell you this, that the default for us is that we must walk the path of a, of a sage. We must be involved, you know, in the places that God has placed us to. We must come down from the mountain and engage the world. We must fulfill our responsibilities. We need to disciple and raise our children, care for our wives, build our families, serve in our communities, 
dispense compassion and soil our hands in the grime of human pain and difficulties. Amen? Church, I want to just leave this with us because what I want to share with us is an understanding of the life that God is calling us to. Amen? I know that there are many more aspects about this, but there is something of this principle that God is laying for us. And in 2022, I don't know what is going to happen in this year. I don't know how the pandemic is going to develop, but I tell you this, there'll be, there'll, we will, there'll be some of us for certain that God will say, hey, for a season and for a reason, will you take the vow of a Nazarite? Will you come aside and live a consecrated life for, for a season? But for, for all of us, we must not forget that our responsibility is in this world. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? I want to bring this to a close. I hope I'm making sense to you guys. Is that okay? Praise the Lord. And, you know, I, I, I tell you this, we are so dependent on the Holy Spirit. Amen. All that we do. And I just feel the stirring in my heart to share this message, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to us in a manner that we would understand, to, to specify it for us, to make it very specific for each of us. Amen. And I want to invite uh, all of us, my brothers and my sisters, for us to posture ourselves before God and say, Lord, thank you for your word, for your understanding. What is, what is it that you're calling me to? Is there a season of a saint that you're asking me to? Are you inviting me to a place of deeper consecration? I, I feel like, you know, the path of a sage is something that is default and we all love it, we all enjoy it. But the path of a saint is something that is really difficult and, and there is an invitation and I love the invitation. Men and women all voluntarily coming. A consecration that is even greater than what the high priest is required but for a season to embrace what is on the burden and on the heart of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for all of us. And we just come to you, Lord. May your clarion voice and sounding come to us. May our spirits be awakened, O Lord, to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us, Lord. It's not going to be the same for all of us. And there are different periods and different seasons we're all going to step into. But give us understanding of this, Lord. Help us walk in that balance. Help us walk knowing what is your will and what your word instructs us to do, O oh God. Father, we love you with all our hearts, O oh God. And Lord, that we, we devote ourselves to you, Lord. We devote ourselves. Help us to be sages in this world to dispense wisdom, Lord, to touch the lost, O oh God, to love those who are hurting, O oh God, to minister to those who are in need, O oh God. But also help us, O oh Lord, to come into seasons where we are so in touch with you, where our focus may not be upon the needs of the world, but our focus are just upon you and what is on your agenda and what is on your heart, O oh God. And Father, we just love you, Lord. Give us wisdom, understanding all these things, O oh God. And Father, now I just speak your blessings over your congregation, all my brothers and my sisters, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap offering, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.